Amen. Can we just give it a round of applause to our worship team, Sheila? And thank you, Sheila and Pastor Tyler and Sarah for leading us. And thank you to all the readers, Dean, Catherine, and Tyler, uh, for leading us. And our chairman of the board for leading us in a prayer of thanksgiving. I appreciate that. Again, I just want to thank you all for being here to an extra service this week as we remember and celebrate the life and death of Jesus Christ. Thank you for those who are up in our balcony. I can see your floating heads. It's good to see you here as well. So you probably see my floating head too. So, But I just want to encourage you for just the next 10 or so minutes uh, from the Word of God. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them, turn them on, whatever you use. Head on over to 2 Timothy. And we're going to be camping out for a couple minutes in chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Uh, and as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. And I don't want you to answer out loud. Just answer in your heart, answer in your mind. If you could abolish anything in this world, what would it be? What would you abolish if you had the power to abolish anything in this world? There are good answers to that question, and I'm sure there are pretty bad answers to that question as well. But the whole idea about abolishing something, eradicating something that we think is wrong, or at least inherently wrong, is a common idea within our modern society. Just this past week, I typed into Google just to see, I said, abolish the, and I let the predictive text fill in the rest because the predictive suggestions are based upon your region's uh, uh, highest searches or country's highest search, uh, and I was not surprised at what I saw. I saw things like abolish the police, abolish COVID rules still, abolish government tyranny, especially here in Canada, apparently. Um, thank you for the laugh there. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of things like that, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's about five categories that were pretty similar. But do you know that what wasn't on the list was death? And you don't hear a lot of people talk about abolishing death because the truth of the matter about death, sorry to burst anybody's bubble here, but everyone's going to die one day. It's inevitable. Death will meet us all at some point in our lives. But look at this great truth that is found in 2 Timothy verses 1 to 8. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of our Lord, oh sorry, uh, suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality and light through the gospel. To summarize all eight of those verses, or sorry, not eight, uh, all few of those verses is to say this, that Jesus has put death to death. Jesus has put death to death, and he has given us life. You actually have to think of this almost in a paradoxical statement, that Jesus has come to put death to death, and he has given, he has brought life to the dead. Anyone who is here, who is outside of Christ, the Bible says you are spiritually dead. Jesus has come to put death to death and to give life to the dead. It's the amazing exchange. 
And as we look at our passage, I want us to follow follow the natural progression of Paul's argument to Timothy here. And so we're going to hit this idea of death being put to death at the end. But for now, we must see this whole argument laid out before us. Paul is telling Timothy in verse 8 not to be ashamed. He says, don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be embarrassed. Rather, be bold. Be confident. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus or of me. And Paul's using me there as also the church. Don't be ashamed of the church. Why would he say that? Because what he's saying, if you look back at verses 6 and 7, which I don't have on the screen, Timothy has experienced, you can see there, the redemptive power of God. And now Paul says you ought to fan that into flame in verse 6, the gift that God has given you. And then in verse 7, he says God has given you the spirit not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. And in light of all that, he says to Timothy, don't be ashamed about Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus, nor of me. And that's why verse 8 starts off with a therefore. Here's a little nugget for you. Anytime you are reading the Bible and you come across a therefore statement, you should ask this simple question. What is it therefore? Because it's there to show you that there is an argument taking place, and this is the concluding of that argument, and now this is how we live because of all that. So he's saying, God has given you a spirit of power. A power. Therefore, Timothy, don't be ashamed. You don't have to feel embarrassed. You don't have to coil back. There is no shame in naming Christ. Naming Christ can feel embarrassing. Let's just be honest. It shouldn't. But it can, especially in our modern culture. When we stand on the truths of God's word, when we stand for Christ in a shifting culture that changes its mind on everything from one day to the next. Today, this is appropriate. Tomorrow, it's not. Now, this wasn't appropriate. Now, it is. We can't make sense in the modern culture. So to stand on the truth of God's word will often get you cause uh, be called closed-minded, bigoted, or intolerant. But truly, church... There is no shame in naming Christ. And there's no shame in identifying with his church either. And let's be honest, identifying with his church is maybe the more awkward part sometimes. uh, Because the church is a little messed up. Every church is messed up. Even this church. we're, We're full of broken people at large. The church is broken and there are problems with it. But that's natural. That's what we should expect. That should always be happening when a group of sinners like you and me come together under one roof. Because I'm bringing all my baggage. I know I look perfect, thank you. But uh, uh, I'm not. I'm the furthest thing from it. And so are you. And so we come into this house, this building, and we bring all of our baggage with us. We're broken. The church is a little broken because we're full of broken people. And we're so broken at times as Christians, sometimes we hurt each other. And that's unfortunate. Sometimes we say the wrong things to each other. Sometimes we believe the wrong things about each other. And it happens all the time when broken people congregate. And I'm not excusing the behavior, but this is why it happens. And this happens in every church. This is why I often call it, I didn't coin this phrase, that's a common phrase, that the church is a hospital for the broken. We have some doctors in our congregation, right? When you go to the hospital, you're not expecting to see very healthy, good people all the time, right? You're seeing broken and and, and, and sick people who are there waiting in the ER room or wherever. And it's the same with the church. We're a hospital for the broken. So we should expect a little bit of degree of mess. This is why the Bible says we should confess our sins not just to God, but to each other. 
We should be making amends when we do hurt each other, when we do believe the wrong things about each other, when we do say the wrong things about each other. We shouldn't just divide. We shouldn't just leave the church and head somewhere else because guess what? You're going to cause problems there too, right? And you're going to get hurt. Every church is messy. But we should confess our sins to one another and not let those relationships sour. And sometimes, and I'm sure if I pass the mic around, many of you could tell me about some negative church experiences that you've had. And, and when that happens, when we get hurt by people in the church, the first thing we want to do is just reject the church altogether. Like, I don't, like it's kind of like Gandhi. I don't want to associate with the church. I'm down with Jesus. Jesus is cool. The church, though, no, no, I'm not going there. It's full of hurtful people. I'm not down with the church. And sometimes we feel ashamed then and embarrassed uh, to associate with the church. But Paul tells us not to be ashamed, for God has given you the spirit of strength, the spirit of power. Therefore, you need to be prepared in your boldness for Christ to suffer well. That's what verse 8 tells us, just a reminder. It says, therefore, do not be ashamed... Do not be ashamed of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. And it's really important for us to understand what Paul is saying here. It's really important for us to suffer well as Christians, as Christ suffered well. He is not saying, Paul is not saying here that, hey, for in order for you to suffer well, you have to be tough. Right? You've got to have some thick skin. You just need to man up a little bit. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying anything remotely close to that because you and I are not strong enough to suffer well on our own strength. We would fail. We would fold every time we are pressured. You see, suffering will be a part of our lives no matter what we do. We will all experience the pain of loss, the pain of death. We will all go through times of need and want. But to suffer well means we as believers seek God's purpose in our suffering. To suffer well means when we face persecution and opposition because we do name the name of Jesus and we do associate ourselves with God's people that we can embrace the pushback that will come from our culture knowing that God has something good in it for us. In fact, what does it say in verse 8? It says to share in the suffering. We're meant to be in a community. We are to share in the suffering that the church will face, not by our own power, because I've already said none of us are strong enough to do that, but we are to share in the suffering of God through his power, as verse 8 tells us. It is God's divine enablement to give you the strength to do that very thing. Now, we can suffer well and, and be bold for God because this, this God empowers us. This God calls us. This God is the God who saves us. And now Paul, in verse 9, moves into some rich gospel language. He says, the God who saved us called us to be holy, to a holy calling, because not of our works, not our performance, but because of his own purpose and grace that he has given us in Christ Jesus before the ages even began. This God saved us, and it was manifested through the appearing of our Savior over 2,000 years ago. Plain and simple, God saves sinners. God saves sinners like you and me. You have been saved if you are in Christ. The person who believes in Jesus has been saved. Your reality is now that you have been rescued. The punishment that you deserve because of your sins has been canceled out. You can stand now before a holy God, completely acceptable, forever loved, because you are forever God's child and nothing can snatch you from his hand. Amen? You are saved. 
And Paul says this salvation is accompanied by a holy calling in verse 9. You see, God doesn't just save you, then forgive you, kind of dust you up and say, all right, have fun. Go do your thing. No, it doesn't work that way. Salvation doesn't just take you out of damnation into salvation without moving you into something called sanctification, which is just the fancy word for the process of you and me becoming more like Jesus in this life right now. Not in eternity. Yes, that will happen. But right now in this life, we are called to a holy calling, a holy way of life where we love God's ways and obey his statutes, where we put him before everything else, where we will truly say that I would rather obey God than man. And when push comes to shove, we make that hard decision. The person who has been saved by God, whose mind has been transformed, whose heart has been renewed, the ways of God are desirable to that person now. Right? We don't love God because we've mustered up enough strength through because we cleaned ourselves up enough. We love God because God loved us first, amen? And we don't keep his commandments in order to be a better Christian or to be more accepted by him. We keep his commandments because we love him first. And we want to serve him. And our entrance into that salvation of God where he forgives sinners, that salvation has been given to us by grace, which is extended to all. By grace. It is not earned. You can't earn this. You can't merit it. You cannot purchase it by your own behavior. You can clean up your behavior all you want and learn how to act like a Christian, but that will not save you. In other words, what Paul says when he says that this is the grace of God, by the grace of God in verse 9, he is making it very clear that every person who stands in and of themselves before a holy God deserves nothing less than damnation. If we try to earn our way to God or live good moral lives, try to pretty ourselves up, put some lipstick on the pig, right? Um, We're going to be shocked when we stand before God and he says, I don't know you. Your good works are just filthy rags before me. Because what we need is not for us to thicken up our skin, to, to dedicate ourselves more to living righteously. What we need is somebody else's performance. What we need is somebody else's work that completed this on our behalf. What we need is Christ's performance. And Christ's performance is a part of God's mercy, which is an extension of his kindness, his help, and his cleansing. God is generous and loving towards those who do not deserve it. This salvation and this holy calling is only possible because of God's purposes and grace. So we are saved and called by grace alone, which is in Christ alone, and, that only, uh, and the only means by which we can be reconciled by God and have all of our ultimate needs met is in Dr- Jesus Christ alone, as we see in the second half of verse 9. He gave us the, uh, Christ Jesus before the ages began. Christ was crucified before the foundations of the world. What Christ did for us over 2,000 years ago on Good Friday when he died, that happened within space and time. It's a historical fact. It It was a gift that was offered to us at the very beginning. You see, the people in the Old Covenant, uh, in the Old Testament, now if you go to Matthew, which is your New Testament, it's the 39 books before that, okay? The people in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to what you possess inside of you. They were looking to the day when salvation would arrive, but we don't long for that day anymore because it's here. It's offered to us freely. The Holy Spirit will empower you as you give your life to Christ. It's already come, and it's available to all. Christ has been manifested. He has come. He has lived. He has died, and he will, and he, sorry, he has rose again. 
And what, does this Je- what did this Jesus do when he lived? Well, he did a lot of good. He did a lot of social good. He healed people. He expelled demons from people. He healed their withered legs of people. He stopped lifelong bleeding that would have ended in an early death. He rose people from the dead. He taught, and he taught well. He stunned and stumped his audiences time and time again. But what did Jesus really come to do? He came to put death to death. This Jesus, our Christ, our Savior, has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's the good news to not just those who are perishing, but it's the good news to us who are already saved as well. Jesus has abolished death, which means he has put it to an end. And there are so many things that we would like to see abolished in this world. We can talk generally here, but I think we could all agree that we would love to see evil abolished from this world. We would love to see injustice abolished from this world. We would love to see greed and idolatry, murder, and and, and abuses of power abolished. But Jesus abolished death. And that abolishment was cosmic. But the question you might have is, why death? Of all the things that Jesus could have uh, abolished, why death? And if Jesus did abolish death, then what does that mean? Because many of you are probably like me who have buried loved ones. And if Jesus really abolished death, then why did we have to see our loved one be buried? But the question we actually have to ask is, what is death? And biblically speaking, death is the curse of God. We read that in the first book of the Bible. When sin enters the world, God curse is death. Death is the judgment of God. The Bible talks about spiritual death of the soul as well. When you're outside of Christ, you're spiritually dead. So why did Jesus abolish death? Well, the answer is simple. Because Jesus came to take our punishment. He came to take our judgment. So it only makes sense that Jesus would take the ultimate punishment, which is our death. And we, we have death because of rebellion of sin. And it's a judgment towards that. We are not created for death. You and I were not created to die. We were created to live. We were not made for either physical nor spiritual death. But yet here we are in the midst of it because of our actions. And this is what Jesus has come to fix. He abolishes death entirely and he gives life. Just listen to the words in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, I tell you, therefore, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you the mystery. We shall not all sleep, which is just biblical language for death, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are not made for death. We brought it upon ourselves. But Jesus saves us from death. And he does so through his death upon a cross. We die because of sin. Not because we're human. But because of our sins. But Jesus steps in our place. And he liberates us. And this is the Christian hope that looks forward beyond death to the resurrection. 
We have life now with God. We have spiritual life, but we also have this hope of a resurrection where we're going to get our bodies back, where we'll be completely and fully and finally restored. Death no longer is the end of the story for those who believe. Death is still here, and it can kind of feel a little anticlimactic to hear that Christ abolishes death, but we still see death all around us every day. Yes, death is still here physically, but for those who believe in Christ, we know it. We don't perish. We're not separated from God. We will be united with God and reunited with believers who have gone before us and who will go after us. This death is not the one that leads us into the judgment of God, but into the loving arms of God himself that is promised through the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was manifested over 2,000 years ago. He died upon the cross, and in dying upon that cross, he killed death and gave us life. Jesus has put death to death and has given us life. He's been given life to the dead. So as I close right now, I want to reverse this argument. I want us to work backwards through the passage. We won't read it again. But starting from the bottom of our passage, back to verse 8. Jesus abolished death. He has given us life. How did he do it? Well, he did it through his death on the cross and through the resurrection from the grave. Because Jesus abolished death, guess what? You can now suffer well. Because what can the world really do to you? Really, what can the world take from you? Because Jesus has given you everything already. Death for the believer has been abolished. What can the world take from you? You have it all in Christ. Now you can suffer well because, and you can be bold and unashamed because God has given you the spirit of power, the strength to walk forward in confidence and through suffering. Yes, Jesus died, church, but he is alive, amen? He rose. That's why we don't mourn on Good Friday. That's why it don't make sense when Christians play act and like, oh, I'm so sad. I wonder what's going to happen. We know Jesus rose, and we celebrate today. We know Christ lived. Jesus died, but he died to conquer death, and in his conquering of evil, he rose victorious with grace, and within his resurrection, he gives you and me the win too. We win because Christ won. The bottom line is we call it Good Friday for a reason. It's the good news that God loved us so much that he gave us his son to die for us while we were unrighteous and undeserving. God demonstrated his love for us and that demonstration frees us from the fear and the sting and the power of death. And I just want to encourage you that if you're here and you're considering Christ, and you don't know where you stand with God, it's easy to get confused in church when we use all this religious language. So let me just try to point you in one clear direction. Everyone here, not just you, me more than everyone else, deserves the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is the judgment of God, just like a judge would execute his judgment in a court. But he sent his son to die for you, for people just like you. And what Jesus did is what he, he took your punishment that you deserved, he took it in his death. And now he gives you life and he gives you victory. He gives you the win. He took your guilt and you get his salvation. He rose from the dead and now he reigns forever. So my encouragement to you is to look to Jesus Christ to trust him, and to follow after him. 
For those that are here that do believe, that are Christians, we are called the same as Timothy. We are called in light of what we have been given in Christ and not to be ashamed of Christ or his salvation or his church, but to sing boldly and loudly like you just have been doing and to, and to preach to everyone who will hear. And don't think of preaching like what I'm doing with you today. You don't need to go stand on the corner and start yelling at people. I just like to yell, Okay. But if you're just having a conversation with someone about Jesus, that's preaching the good news to them. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to be a loud mouth or belligerent. But we offer this message of hope and salvation to all who will hear it. Amen? We should be bold in this church. We should be confident in this. And as we face suffering on account of following Jesus Christ, we know that we have the power in him to persevere. So Jesus died for sinners. Praise God for that. And let us do that. Let us praise God as we come together and take communion. So if you would grab your communion elements and would you stand with me.